Welcome to Echo Church, everyone. My name is J.D. Partain. I am the pastor here at Echo Church. Uh, how many of you have traveled more than 100 miles to be here today? Wow, right? All right, so we should, yeah. Makes us look really good. <laughs> so, um, you, uh, I just want to say this. Apostello, the Apostello Week, is one of the highlights of our church. All right, so I'm super excited for all of you who are involved with that particular project. For those of you who are visiting and have no idea what I'm talking about, it's simply this. We have a crew of people that are on the ground this week in the city of Missoula and actually on the outskirts of Missoula, and they're painting homes, they're fixing decks, they're moving people, cutting grass, they're doing things that, honestly, people need, and quite, quite frankly, we just want to serve and connect and, and create relationship with all sorts of people. This is our third year doing this. Last year, uh, we did a lot of flood relief uh, and, that, and that type of thing. But it's not something that we go around and then boast about. But rather, what we want to do is we want to live out of faith that's been given to us. So the name of our church is Echo Church. And if you're curious about that, really what it, it means is we are a resonation. We are a reflection. Jenna already talked about it before. We are reflecting the love of God. He first loved us. We then love everyone else, right? But we aren't just going to confine that to the walls of a church building. No, we're going outside these doors, and then we're going to live out of faith on the ground in tangible ways. Everybody always makes fun of me because I say, you're going to roll up your sleeves, and my sleeves are always rolled up. But I'm here to tell you, you're going to get dirty, and you're going to get in the mess of humanity, and you're going to bring light into darkness. And so anyway, those of you who are here this week, I am super excited, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, you're also in the middle of a series, and the series is really only two lessons, but it's actually meant to be a primer. So I need to make just a couple of announcements. The first one is this. Uh, coming this August, we're going to have uh, a certain number of Sundays where we are opening up the stage right here. If you have a message that's on your heart, that's kind of the key phrase. If the message is on your heart, right, and you want to share it with the church, please see me. Please see Benji or, or Brett, our elders. And uh, we would love to have coffee with you and just sort of talk about, you know, what you've been thinking about. And then... We would love to give you that opportunity. So if that's something that, you know, God has laid inside of you, please come and speak with me about it. The second thing you should know is this. Um, we are going to be walking into a study. In my opinion, it's probably the most ambitious study that I have uh, ever had the privilege to lead. We are going to be looking at a number of different issues this summer that um, can be volatile, I suppose, but are going to require the members of this church to really open their Bibles and read and understand the Word of God, perhaps in ways that you haven't before. We'll be looking at what does it mean, this, this idea of um, the roles of women, specifically women in ministry. What is that? What, what does the Bible have to say about women, both in the Old Testament and then also in the New Testament, and in our context right here, in this church, in 2019? Okay, Already, several of you are very uncomfortable, right? It's a difficult subject, which is why I have this particular series. This is a series that's on this strange concept called the heart. Last week, I came before you and I said, you know what? My heart's not in it. What does that communicate? Now, the truth is, my heart is in it. In fact, my heart is very excited, and it's full and overflowing. Well, what does that communicate? I mean, what are we talking about? 
this physical organ that's inside of me right now? Are we talking about my spirituality? Are we talking about my mentality? I mean, what are we talking about? What's funny is we all know what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. You don't have to be a Christian. You can be saying to other people, yeah, you know what? Uh, I love that person's heart. What are you talking about? So we, we, we've been exploring this, and I just, I'll go through just a few notes just to kind of catch you up. The, the concept of heart, whether it's in the Hebrew or in the Greek, the Hebrew is labab, and in the Greek it's kardia. Those phrases have been used over a thousand times throughout the Bible. So God obviously has a lot to say about it. But in terms of what he's talking about, what does it mean? Typically, especially in ancient cultures, they would refer to the heart because the heart was and is that organ at the center of your body. It's inside of your body, right? So it's sort of a a manifestation of everything that's central to humanity. We're talking about your intelligence. We're talking about your emotional state. We're talking about the spiritual state. All of that being summed up into one specific place, and so people would call it the heart. Several attributes that we discussed last week. Number one, it's inaccessible. So what do I mean by that? You can't see another person's heart, right? There's only one who can. And we talked about the accessibility that God has to your heart. God would even tell the prophet Samuel, the judge Samuel, he would say, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. At the time Samuel was about to anoint the next king of Israel, which would be King David, and he thought he had it all figured out because all the guys in the room were really handsome, big, you know, muscular guys, and little boy David was out in the sheep. In fact, his father didn't even invite him to the party. He's like, well, I do have one other kid, you know, and, and the Lord says, don't look at that outward appearance. Look at this, right? So God has access to it, but we as humans, we can glimpse the heart of another person. Sometimes you hear this phrase, you can't really judge a person's heart, Really? I mean, God's the judge, right? The ultimate judge. Only he really can judge. But what about just the idea of discernment? I'm telling you right now, as parents, I put a lot of emphasis in this. My wife and I, we talk about it all the time. We're constantly discerning the hearts of our children. And how do we see them manifest themselves? in the way they talk, in the things that they do, the decisions that they make are all glimpses of this thing called the heart. What else is an attribute of the heart? Well, obviously emotion plays a huge part. The Bible refers to all sorts of different emotions as coming from the heart. But then also this idea of intellect. Uh, Jesus would say, um, you know, during the, the, the miracle where he's raising up a paralyzed man, he would say, The Bible would say about Jesus, he would say, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your brains? No, your hearts, right? Intellect is somehow tied into that, and because of it, we even educate. Proverbs 3.3, do not let kindness and truth leave you. That sounds like good advice. Bind them around your neck. Awesome. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That idea of educating is found in this concept of what it means to have the heart. And we have capacity, and this is where I left it last week, we have the capacity to plan. Uh, Proverbs 16.9 says, In his heart a man plans his course. Of course, the Lord determines his steps. But we plan. But that's both good and challenging. Matthew 15. 
Jesus shares this with Peter. He says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, but they defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound very positive, right? But you see, I'm a part of a men's accountability group. And by accountability group, it means you get to be transparent with each other to such an extent that at one point I asked our group of guys, I said, hey, what are you planning? You know, we talk about our addictions. We talk about the things that we're attracted to. Do we ever share the schemes of our heart? Because I think that takes us to a whole different level of vulnerability. Now all of a sudden you're talking about intention. Now all of a sudden you're not talking about accidental sin. No, no. You're talking about the things you plan out. The fantasies that you have and then the logistics that you work out to make them into a reality. Now all of a sudden we're going into the depths of the heart. Which is why I believe that in Proverbs chapter 23, the, the, the writer says, Give me your heart, my son. Let your eyes delight in my ways. It's almost like the father cares so much for his kiddo, he's saying, Listen, I can see you're struggling. Just give me your heart. Just let me have it, right? And God gives us the exact same type of command. Jesus specifically states in the greatest command, the exact same sentiment with Matthew chapter 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. God wants that. He wants your heart. With all your soul, with all your mind, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. Well, today I want to pick up from there. I want us to go over to Ezekiel chapter 36. And in Ezekiel, I really have to blast through this because I have so much to say today, so I'm going to really kind of rush through some things. But in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36 is one of my favorite chapters. Now, most people think about Ezekiel chapter 37 because in chapter 37 is where you hear this wonderful story about the Valley of Dry Bones, right? And the Valley of Dry Bones, and, and they, they come to life, and there's even a song about it, how the ankle bone's connected to the leg bone, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's all happening. And that's a fun chapter, all right? Please don't get sidetracked during this sermon, reading that chapter, but it's great. The chapter before that is this. God is illustrating to Ezekiel, through the Valley of Dry Bones, a redemption. Right? He's giving him hope, is what he's doing. But in chapter 36, God is explaining why that's going to come about. He says this. The word of the Lord came to me, he said, the son of man, this is in verse 16, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanliness of a woman in her impurity. It was like minstrel rags, some of your translations will say. So therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the lands. And according to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. And when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, even more so, because it was said of them, these are, this is from the people saying to them, these are the people of the Lord? Yet they have come out of his land. 
In other words, they can't even believe it. These are the people that have the name of the living God, and yet they live this way? They talk this way? They defile the land this way? Really? How do you think that reflects upon the Lord? So I had concern, verse 21, for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. So therefore say to the house of Israel, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but it is for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I love this lesson, and I want to go into it all the time. We don't have time for it, but I believe the ultimate goal of our lives, some people will say make disciples. Some people will say go to heaven. I disagree with both. I think God has made it clear. He wants us to live a life that glorifies him, that brings him glory. It means that you as your creation, right, as, as God's creation, I'm sorry, the Imago Dei created by God, right, in his image, have the capacity to glorify him. What a responsibility, but also what an opportunity, right? So he's saying right here, because you have profaned my name, I'm going to bless you so that the nations around you will then give the glory back because I want my glory He's not doing this because of this great love that he has for his people. I think he does love them, but he's making it clear. The blessing I'm giving to you, it's for me. It's for my glory. Now, for some of you, that might be a little tough for you to hear, that we aren't necessarily at the center of the universe. American religion would have you think that, but we're not. God is. So then he says this. The nations will then know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among your sight. I will take you from those nations. I'll gather you from all the lands. I'll bring you back to your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. And then listen to what he says right here. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh I will give you a heart of flesh of sensitivity I think with, with, go ahead with that one Ethan um, I will give you a new heart I will put a new spirit in you this is the new living translation I like the way they say this I will take out your heart of stone and give you a tender responsive heart last week I ended the lesson by saying pray to God Psalm 51 Create in me, O God, a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. You see, everyone in this room has a heart that is undergoing a kind of petrification. It's turning to stone. There's a constant war that's happening. And what I want to do today is this. I want to talk about three different infections. I feel as though infection is probably the right word. Believe it or not, I spent almost an hour trying to figure out what to call these things, okay? Andy Stanley has written a great book that's called Enemies of the Heart. I highly recommend it. Um, I have pulled some of his material from there, and I'll I'll give reference to him. But I I just had trouble naming this one Enemies of the Heart. 
Because it almost sounds as though it's outside of us, as if we have no control and there's this force and it's trying to take over our heart, etc. And I understand what he's trying to say. But I'll tell you this, I think infections is a better word. I think infection means, to some extent, you have control. You know, if you tend to an, an infection, it can get better, right? Ultimately, though, it will be the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to allow that infection to be cured. But you do have some play in that. So the first infection is this. Number one, it comes out of 1 John uh, 1, verses 5 through 10. Um, and it's this idea of shame. Now, here's what I think happens. I think many times what happens is, is we first experience this idea of guilt, right? We do something that's wrong. We know that it's wrong, and we do it anyway. And then as time goes by, we feel that sense of guilt. But there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Ted Roberts, who wrote the book, Pure Desire, he says this. He says, guilt is, I did something wrong. Shame is, I am something wrong. There's a sense where suddenly we begin to put our value based upon all that we have done that is wrong. It's almost as though we take on a particular identity. When this infection begins to spread, it turns us from being valuable in the sight of God as being the image of God that can bring him glory into something that's worthless. How do we get there? What do we do about that particular infection that we, that we tend to have? Andy Stanley writes these words. He says, consider the man who runs off with another woman and abandons his family without realizing that at the time he's stolen something from every member of his family. He's robbed his wife of her future, her financial security, and her reputation as a wife. From his children's perspective, this man has stolen their Christmas, the traditions, emotional and financial security, dinners with the family, and so on. The man who did all of this doesn't think in terms of what he has taken. Initially, he thinks in terms of what he has gained, but the first time that his little girl will ask him why he doesn't love mommy anymore, his heart is stirred, and he suddenly feels guilty, and now he knows. Daddy owes the idea is that you find yourself owing something. Guilt has this way of reminding us that if there has been an injustice, if there has been a crime, if there has been a sin, then quite frankly, it has to be satisfied. A debt has to be paid. And if it's my responsibility, then I'm the one who owes. And there's this constant pressure of what it means to constantly think of how you owe something. Even in this particular situation, how would a person rectify the situation? Well, maybe they would work harder, right? Maybe they would try to spend more time with family, more time with kids, you know? We often think, all right, I'm going to make it right. How many of you guys in your romantic relationships, perhaps, when you, uh, you know, you you have a girlfriend and, and whatnot, and you do something stupid. Okay, now I have plenty of these examples, but we don't have time for all of them. You know, so you do something stupid. What is your response? I'm gonna, don't worry. I'm going to make it right, right? I know I forgot about our anniversary. I'm going to make it right, right? All right, but we trust in who? Us. It's about us. There's like this arrow that's pointed in that says, I, I can fix it. Now, I know that I owe, but I can fix it. And the problem is this. 
is that with so much of our sin, we will never arrive at a full solution. There will always be a debt that's hanging over us, an unpaid debt. And given enough time and repeat occurrence, unpaid debt leads to shame. It leads to this idea, I can't ever get it right. It leads to this idea that, you know what, no matter what I do, I am not perfect, and I'm not going to be able to please anybody. And I can't please my wife, I can't please my kids, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into this pit that says, I'm useless. This world would be better off without me. And unfortunately, people end up in that pit. And we've talked about it. We've talked about what it means to be in this pit of such strong despair that it feels as though you're already dead. What does it mean to come face to face with that? What does it mean to come face to face with this pile of guilt that has solidified into shame, that has taken over your heart, that makes you think you are worth nothing? I'll give you an answer. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could give you more. You won't like it. It's found in 1 John 1 verse 9. It says, if we confess, if we confess our sins that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if I confess... Not what you wanted. Confession is one of those church things that we like to talk about, but do we really want to do it? Yeah, no. We definitely do not. Because we have spent too much time, too much effort, trying to build up a protective wall around ourselves, right? We're not ready to be vulnerable, not to that extent. I've already mentioned our men's group. So it's part of a larger program that we call Burn the Ships. It addresses sexual addiction. As far as I know, it's one of the only ones in the city. We have other churches that are now doing similar programs, and we're all networked together under this thing called Burn the Ships. And so we have this program. But it's been fascinating because if you announce to a church, hey, you guys, we're having a men's group, and if you suffer from a porn addiction or infidelity or anything like that, you should sign up. How many people do you think are like... Yes, I've been waiting, me, right? Nobody. To get a guy to step forward and sign up for a group, I mean, it's like pulling them, right? You're literally having to just, most of the time, what we find is that someone has already hit rock bottom. They have no other options. They're out of solutions. And they've been wrapping their minds around the fact that, guess what? I can't do this myself. And that's when they find themselves going to a group. But I'm here to tell you right now, if you can get past the initial pain of the transparency, you would not believe the amount of blessing that waits for you on the other side. I promise, I promise. I, I'm, I'm telling you right now from both experience, from both you know, what the Bible has said and what I've learned right now, to get past the initial pain of what it means to be transparent, to voice out loud your deficiencies and the sin that you've created. What awaits for you on the other side is a community that has the exact same amount of sin, that also is looking for the exact type of community, and all of it is gathered up in the arms of Jesus Christ. It's by His grace, 
his grace that you find healing. Now listen, we preach about it all the time. It's one thing for the preacher to get up here and talk about it, and then you leave, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I know all about this grace stuff. Man, give it an opportunity. This is an opportunity for you to see it work. I challenge you. I challenge you. What are the things that you feel that tremendous guilt, perhaps even that shame, perhaps even that lack of, of value? Find someone else that you trust and share it. I challenge you and see what happens. Number two, infection number two. Oh, man. Oh, we're going to have to get through this one. That, that was the signal for... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Infection number two is anger. Oh my goodness, this one's a tough one. Ephesians 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Ephesians 4, starting verse 25, it says these words. It says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not allow the sun to go down on your anger. I remember this as a kid because my mom taught it to us. She was always like, don't let that sun go down on your anger, you know. We're seeing it sink, we're like, ah, you know. What's the point? You're members with each other. Deal with this. He goes on. He says, don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. It sounds as though he's ta- suddenly talking about stealing and, you know, cussing or something. And he, you know, does Paul have a little bit of, you know, ADD going on? I thought we were talking about anger up here. And then he has these other subjects. And then he says these words, he says in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy, the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that word and is important. I'm a little disappointed in the New American Standard. They do not include the word and, but the and is actually this Greek word. It's a conjunction. It's key or chi, K-A-I. And essentially what it means is that the phrase that comes after is connected to the previous. In other words, it's not a standalone instruction. Paul isn't saying, you know, don't do this and do this and don't do this. Oh yeah, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Commentators, most of them agree. No, what Paul is referring to is the fact that everything that you just read before, that's what's grieving the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but it's a personification of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's more than that. It's showing that the Holy Spirit fills this. Isn't that odd? We usually think of God as having nothing but positivity, right? No, no. He can be sad. He's grieved. The Holy Spirit, whatever that is that's living inside of me, is grieved by the things that I choose to do with my mind, with my heart. And then he goes back to these words. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He lists six different aspects of anger. All right, it's important when the Bible mentions something. It's really important when they mention it twice. Okay, we have six different types. What does that tell you? 
Many times I think we as Christians, we just want to focus on what we consider to be good anger. And there is such a thing as good anger. But let's just look at these six really, really quick. The first one, this idea of bitterness. What is he talking about when he talks about bitterness? Perhaps it's that type of attitude that then spreads like wildfire, right? Have you ever been around a bitter person? Or how about this? Have you ever been in a group of people and then someone comes in and they are bitter, right? What does it do? It's like a contamination. It just kind of spreads throughout the room. Acts 8 talks about this. Romans 3 talks about this. Hebrews 12 talks about this. The second one is wrath. The Greek term is thymos, which refers to a furnace, actually. It's hot and fiery. This idea of wrath. It could be described as perhaps even rage, but it's the kind of anger that boils over to the point that, guess what? You are no longer in control. Something else has taken over. So here we have this idea of wrath, this fire that burns. And then the third thing he says is anger. That's kind of general anger, right? What's he talking about? Well, he earlier just said that you could be angry. Remember? Be angry. It's almost a command. Be angry, but do not sin, right? So there is obviously a good anger that does exist. Here's where you get offended. I'm pretty sure most of you, that when you have anger, that's not the kind. I would say about 10% of the anger that you think is righteous anger is probably righteous anger. The remaining 90% is not. Now, you could be angry with that statement, and I would love to be wrong. If you think I'm wrong, please challenge me. I will gladly repent and ask for your forgiveness if the anger that you have is righteous. Okay? There's, there's that challenge. I think many times we have no control over our anger, and more importantly, we don't allow anyone else to have control over our anger. I think the idea of frustration, I always say this to people, I'm like, frustration is actually an emotional identification of a problem. Think about it. When I become frustrated with something, it is emotional, but it is the identification of a problem. And it's almost as if, you know what, if we could kind of keep the anger back just a little bit, you could be frustrated. I think it's a good anger. I think it identifies a problem. As long as it stays in that emotional place and doesn't burst into, into flame, especially into, into wrath. What about injustice, right? Can we be angry about injustice? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, that's the kind of stuff we ought to be angry for. David even writes about it in the psalm. He says, Arise, O Lord, in anger, and stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. In other words, something wrong has happened in the world. Things are not right, and they ought to be right. And I can be angry about that because we have to do something. That's the kind of anger that makes people, it spurs them into action, right? So that's a good type of anger. And then I would also say that the abuse of holiness. In other words, this idea where there has been something that is holy that has been violated, Maybe it's been used for personal gain, and we get upset about it. Remember last week I talked about the fact that David was in a cave, and King Saul, who was the king before him, was trying to kill him, right? And he was going to kill David, 
but he had to um, take care of some business, that means go to the bathroom, in a cave, right? So he's going to the bathroom in the cave, and David's in there. He's been hiding. He's like, oh my goodness, the Lord has delivered my enemy into my hands. He says that. So he takes out his knife, and he cuts off a little corner of the robe. It says that his conscience was bothered so much by that. He went back and told his own circle of friends, he's like, far be it from me that I should reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Isn't that something? Is your heart so stirred about what's happening to God and his glory, like we read about in Ezekiel, that it causes anger? That's a righteous anger. That's a good anger. So I've given you three examples of good anger. I'm kind of curious if you actually experience that, or is the other anger that you have what you think is good, but not necessarily. Let's go on. Clamor is another word. The Greek word is krahe, krohe, kragi. Uh, I should have wrote it up, but it implies, the, it, the term implies noise and commotion and, and uproar. You know, this kind of an uproar. There's a great story in Acts chapter 23. Uh, the Apostle Paul is essentially standing on trial before the Sanhedrin, and he discerns, wait a second, these guys over here, they're Pharisees, and these guys over here, well, they're Sadducees. And he knows that the difference between the two groups is they have very different views about the resurrection. And so he says these words. It says, Paul perceiving that one group was Sadducees, the other Pharisees. Paul began by crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And it says that there was a cry, a noise, a commotion, like everyone stood up, right? And they were all upset because all of a sudden he touched a hot spot. <laughs> and he knew it. It's kind of fun to watch him manipulate the situation. But it's like all of a sudden people are standing up on their feet. It could also be translated as quarreling. This is the kind that gets you into trouble and possibly even arrested if you're going to have your argument and take it outside, right? This is clamor. And then slander, speaking false evils about somebody else. Guess what? It's a debate tactic. I hate debates. I really do. I like to be in debates, but I hate watching them because usually what happens is people start to pull cheap tricks. I don't care if we're talking about presidential debates or the debates you see at high school. As soon as we start slandering the other people, it becomes more about winning rather than arriving at the truth. That's what he's talking about. This idea of slander and speaking false evil. And then the last one is malice, which comes from the Greek word kakia, which means evil intent. In other words, the malice means that somewhere in your anger, you have evil intent. Flat out evil intent for that person. You are going to destroy them. Okay, all these levels of anger. Paul's like, do away with all of it, except for the good stuff, and get rid of it. So how does this infiltrate our heart? How does this create schemes? that we need to be aware of. Here's what I think happens. I think anger that is left unattended sets the stage. It's like it paints this room black and it furnishes it with all these tools of revenge. There's a brooding that begins to occur and it occurs because it feels good. You monologue, you devise speeches, even worse, you devise plans. Every time there's a school shooting, there's all sorts of debate that pops up into the air. But every single time I think about 
the shooter hunkered down in whatever bunker he had making his plans. What happened? How is it that a person would arrive at that level of atrocity? What was going on here? Why do we feel as though we're not vulnerable to it? Why do we put that kind of a person in a separate category from ourselves? Why do we think that some, somehow vitriol splashed, whether it's around social media or in your social circles or wherever it might be, is good? You're Christians. You wear the name Christ. Fight for things that are holy. Fight for injustice. Be emotional. But be in control of your anger. I believe that this is perhaps the most devastating aspect of the infections that I was hoping to talk about. I think it's the most devastating one. On, on the positive side, I think it's the easiest to identify. But I think it is the most devastating. And my question to you is this. Is there any way that you would allow other people to identify your anger? Is there any way that you would allow other people, you know, we just talked about using other people in terms of confession, in terms of shame and trying to heal up from that. What about using other people in regards to your anger? Can you allow yourself to hear whatever that constructive criticism might be? Here's the other problem. Will you allow someone to come close to you without you destroying them? You see, I think this is the scariest one. Because people who are angry, who are really hot, they're scary. You don't know what's going to happen. Correct? So my next question is, for the rest of you, do you have the courage to step into that circle? That takes guts. I just told you that our church is about taking whatever principles God has given us and putting it on the ground in real ways. We're going to live out our faith, right? Can you live this out? It takes courage. When someone's upset, can you step into that circle and trust? You might actually get hurt. But knowing that with your heart, as pure as you, as you feel uh, that it is, you are actually there for them to help them with this issue. So here's, here's the three-step process that I recommend for anger that is somehow stuck in your heart. Number one, identify who you're angry with whom. Identify whom. Yeah, object. It's not the subject. Yeah, I think it's whom. Uh, <laughs> whom <laughs> identify whom you're angry with. All right? So step one, find, identify who that is. Who is that? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for just a second. It could be that it's yourself. Sometimes the one who has taken something from you is you. And self-loathing is a very real thing. All the more reason to have someone by your side. If anyone can identify self-loathing, it's going to be that trusted person who walks alongside you. So we have to identify it. Determine what it is that you owe. And then number three is this. 
And it comes out of the end of that passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgive each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. So the step three is this. Once you've you've identified who you're angry with, and once you've identified what it is that they owe you, you cancel the debt. You forgive. You cancel the debt. Now, I made that sound very easy. (laughs) I know it's not. But in terms of a step-by-step process, that's what we recommend. And then the last infection is this. Infection of the heart, number three, is simply greed. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Man, (laughs) that's that's how I like to read it. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware. Be on your guard against every form of greed for not, even, not, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I know, this is kind of a no-brainer. We've talked about this. Your possessions do not define you, okay? I think we're all in agreement of that. But when we're talking about greed, what else might we be talking about? The third enemy of the heart is greed. It's essentially this, that we feel we deserve more. We feel as though we deserve more. See, I think many times we think of greed as I want, which it is, I want. But what if it's actually more along the lines of I owe me. I owe me. I deserve that. I owe it to myself. Now, there is a phrase we hear all the time. I owe it to myself to be happy. I owe it to myself to take this trip. I owe it to myself to buy that car, you know? Like, that's the way we speak because we think about our own health above all else. Godly? American religion? I mean, where do we place ourselves? I'm not saying it's not important to treat yourself, to make sure that you are healthy. But in a culture where the air masks fall from the ceiling and we have to put on ours first before assisting a child or someone else, have we perhaps overstepped? Have we gone too far? Do we really think that religion is all about us? That's why I like the passage in Ezekiel. Is it really all about you? Are you at the center? I mean, how does this work out? What do we do with this? Some of your translations say covetousness instead of greed, all right? Which is kind of the same thing, but it's a little bit different. Usually when we're talking about covetousness, we're talking about not only do I owe that to, my, to myself, right? Not only do I want that, but covetousness is I want what he's got or what she has, right? In fact, those of you who know your Bibles... It's the 10th commandment. I mean, Exodus 20, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet that. And it's difficult to identify. Whereas I think anger perhaps is most destructive, but it's easy to identify, I think this attribute, this idea of greed, is the most difficult to identify. Sometimes it hides 
in your heart dormant for a long time until just the right opportunity suddenly unleashes it and we become very highly susceptible. James 4 says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight, so you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James is reminding us that these external conflicts are the direct results of an internal conflict that we have within our own hearts. I'll tell you this, I've been in other cultures where jealousy and covetousness is more of a sin issue than things like sexual promiscuity. It's fascinating. I mean, this idea that we want to have what other people have. So how do we take care of this? What does it mean for us to accept the fact that we are uh, rich in God and the fact that maybe we should be content with what he has already given us? Once again, I would encourage you to do this. I don't think you're in the best position to assess your own heart. Do you see a common theme? In community, community that you trust, find that person, find those people, and ask a bold question. Do you see signs of greed? Do you feel as though I want too much for myself? Do you think I'm perhaps a little selfish? Ask that question. And then tell people, okay, you can be honest and you can't run out of the room. You have to listen. Can you do this? Are your wants, your desires, the thoughts that you have, are they legitimate? Are they healthy? Are they God-glorifying? I'll tell you this as 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 we're closing up. It's not just material things. Especially in this day and age, I would suggest that there are non-physical things that you are constantly coveting, that you find yourself feeling a sense of greed towards, and it's typically wrapped around your own insecurities, the emotional areas, the things that we lack. For example, attention. Sometimes your greed is for attention. In fact, sometimes you covet the attention that someone else is getting instead of yourself. Is that true? I think we see it from a very early age, and I think it plagues us all our life. What about affirmation? Oh, man. I'm not going to pick on social media. I'm really not. But affirmation is simply this. I want people to like me. The most brilliant thing Facebook did was create a little button that has the word like. Even change the English vocabulary. You can, you know, unlike someone or whatever it is. But we want that, you know? Because as soon as we get it, what happens? We feel this sense of accomplishment or we feel this sense of value. It's all of a sudden we get a dopamine kick because, hey, someone likes me, right? We want that affirmation. Another one, attraction. I want people to think that I'm attractive. We're not even talking about seduction, just flat out attraction. So we go on these strange diets and extreme diets. Some of them are very healthy, some of them are not. We transform our bodies and we put so much of a focus on the way that we look that we have an internal greed that all it wants is to be attractive 
and perhaps even to be attractive like that person. In fact, I hate her because she's attractive and I'm not attractive. You know, that kind of a thing. These are subtle. It's hard to identify in yourself. What about significance? I think this applies mainly, perhaps even more so to uh, my generation and up. You know, you're getting closer and closer to the jump off spot, right? So you want to know, wait, is my life significant? Do I, do I have significance? It's, it's fascinating to me because when I look at the number of volunteers who sign up for certain social causes, I see a lot of people who are older than me. And I think that is something that people are striving for. They're like, I got to make sure that it counts. There is perhaps an internal greed that says, I've got to make sure that I'm significant. So we pursue it. Or maybe it's solitude. I hate people. I don't want, I don't want anything. I want to be left alone, <laughs> right? And so that's what we learn, yearn for. And we cut people off left and right. It's a different kind of greed, but isn't it still kind of the same self-satisfying type of greed that we're looking for? All right, I've gone a little bit over time, but I'm telling you this right now. We are going to perhaps be referencing some of these principles as we move forward. Next week, I'm going to be laying out some principles on how to study the Bible. Hope you come back. I know that doesn't sound exciting, but it actually is. Um, I promise. Uh, because we're going to be reaching deep into the Word of God, but in two weeks, we're going to go ahead and begin our study on the roles of women. What happens when you find yourself disagreeing with somebody else? What happens when the foundation of what you've been raised up with perhaps becomes a little bit rocked or attacked from your perspective? Will you have anger? What happens when you find yourself in a spot where you've been hoping and waiting for the church to finally arrive at the conclusions that you had all along and it's like now you get to have this freedom and you just want to grab it up? Is that not greed? Listen, I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you as a 46-year-old man who has been through way too many Bible arguments. I'm so done. I'm so done. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that I've been through. Some of you were there for a little bit of it, you know? It's like as soon as we start talking about theology and these deep things, we just want to rip each other to pieces. We want to form our camps, and you're over there, and I'm over here. That is an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of the Bible. We're all in pursuit of the truth. And I have spent a ton of time on this topic. And I'm here to tell you right now, look at my heart. I'm really trying to do what's right. And I'm going to trust that in you as well. And I want you to trust that in each other. Can we agree to that? Can we find the community that we need that's going to be okay with that? I think yes. I like to hope. <laughs> Let me just close with this. It comes out of Ephesians 4. It reminds us how to be towards each other. Ephesians is a fantastic book. It's a book that Paul wrote, of course, to, to, to Ephesus, right, to the church there. But in it, what he's talking about is this, is that because of Jesus Christ, because of the grace that was poured out, the love 
that he has showed us, the love that God has showed us through Jesus Christ, something has changed. Now you think I'm going to talk about salvation. Now Paul says in Ephesians, he says, a wall has been torn down. A wall of enmity. What's he talking about? Now, in his context, he's talking about the wall that separates Jews and Gentiles. He specifically reminds them, you now are together. There is a union. There is one body that is now together. And they are all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. No one rises above anyone else. And if you're going to put on the blood of Jesus Christ, if you're going to surrender your life to him, then you are going to be like a new person. We call it the new man. Paul then uses his classic phrase, therefore. And he says, therefore, do this. And he gives this beautiful description from chapter 4, 5, and 6 where he's saying the old person looked like this, but the new person looked like this. And the old person did these things, but now the new person doesn't do these things. And he's given them this sort of a, a painting that he's painting out, saying because of what's been done for you, you now have a new life. And it's exciting, and it's beautiful, and the old life that you had, you're no longer a slave to it. You're done with it. So quit trying to live in that life. And that is where he says these words. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to one another. Forgive each other. Why? Just as God in Christ forgave you. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. It's got several different stations around the room. There's one on each side and then one in the back. You'll find little cups of grape juice plus a tray that has a cracker inside of it. The cracker is representative of unleavened bread, and it's supposed to be representative of Christ's flesh. He instituted this memorial during something that was a Jewish holiday called Passover. Basically, what it was was this. The Jews were remembering a time of deliverance when they were taken out of Egypt. God delivered them so quickly, he said, get ready, we're leaving tonight. There's no time for the leaven in your bread to rise up. And all the, you know, people who are baking, they're like, oh, you got to be kidding. And so he said, nope, grab the dough, let's go. And so it had no leaven in it. <laughs> and so because it had no leaven, they reflect back on that particular time of deliverance. Jesus then takes that moment of deliverance and then uses it to leverage a greater truth, which is this. You don't have to be a Jew to experience the deliverance of God. You experience it through Him. It's a deliverance for everyone. And that deliverance is found when we take this memorial. For those of you who have already surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, you're remembering this. You're remembering, I no longer am with the old world. I've been delivered from it. And so as we take this, you'll take a piece of that and you'll eat that, and I hope that you remember that. You can stand with other people and you can pray. Some of you are going to be a little uh, shocked at the amount of chaos that's about to happen. Some people like to talk. Some people like to pray. You don't have to do any of that. You can come back to your seat and you can sit quietly while the band plays. But it's your time with God, and we hope that you use it. There will be two songs before Jen closes us out with announcements so there's plenty of time 
So let's go ahead and bow our head in prayer and take this memorial. Gracious God, Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much for what you've given. You've given us this very difficult and complex book, and yet at the same time it contains such simple truth that we can read it, that we can understand it, and more importantly, Lord, we can see the amount of love that you have had for us. The kind of love that reaches down and says, no matter what you have done to me, no matter how much you've spit in my face, no matter how much you've rejected me, no matter what the sin is that you have committed against me, I love you. We call it grace. Lord, thank you for that grace. Thank you for the fact that that grace was poured out through Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life so that he would carry all the sin and the garbage that's in our lives. It all falls on him. And he takes the debt and pays it off. Can we remember that? Lord, help us to live lives as new creations. To live lives that have experienced what it means to be in that pit of despair that's filled with so much shame, but then found renewal through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to remember these things as we take this unleavened bread, which represents his flesh, and as we take this fruit of the vine, which represents his blood. Help us to remember these things, Lord, and be with us at this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.